Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss the radical mismatch between your intuitive sense of risk and the actual risks you face. We look at why most experts and forecasters are less accurate than dart-throwing monkeys. We talk about how to simply and dramatically reduce the risk of most of the major dangers in your life. We explore the results from the Good Judgment Project, which is a study of more than 20,000 forecasts. We talk about what super forecasters are, how they beat prediction markets, how they beat intelligence analysts with classified information and software algorithms to make the best possible forecasts, and much more with Dan Gardner. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 650,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. A lot of our listeners are curious how to organize and remember all this information. I get listener emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you keep track of everything? How do you keep track of these interviews, podcasts, books that you read, studies that you read, all this incredible information? I've developed a system from reading hundreds of books, from doing all this research, from interviewing these incredible experts, and I put it all in a free PDF that you can get. All you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. It's a free guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. Listeners are loving this guide. I get emails every day from people talking about how this has helped them transform their lives and keep themselves more organized. You can get it completely for free. All you have to do is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. 
In our previous episode, we discussed why the happiness movement has done us a disservice and sometimes actually makes things worse, how perfectionism creates the illusion of control and distorts your reality, how to become aware of the critical inner voice at the root of your pain and unhealthy habits, the incredible power of self-compassion, and much more with Megan Bruno. If you're struggling with difficult emotions, if you want to become happier, if you have a battle with perfectionism, listen to that episode. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Dan Gardner. Dan is a New York Times bestselling author and a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. His latest book, Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction, which he co-authored with Philip Tetlock, Super Forecasting was chosen as one of the best books of 2015 by The Economist, Bloomberg, and Amazon. Dan's also the author of Future Babble and Risk, The Science and Politics of Fear. He also previously worked as a policy advisor to the Premier of Ontario and as a journalist for the Ottawa Citizen. Dan, welcome to the Science of Success. Hello. Well, we're very excited to, uh, to have you on here today. So for listeners who might not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, sure. I sort of had a bit of an eclectic background. I uh, initially, after law school, I went and worked in politics, and then I got into journalism and did a whole bunch of work in journalism. And then I happened to catch a, a lecture one year by a man who was uh, is a pioneer in the field of risk perception psychology, Paul Slovak. And that lecture really opened my eyes, made, a, made me connect a lot of dots. I started to think about psychology. I started to study psychology heavily. And that's sort of been the course of my career ever since. And it's really been an interesting experience because when you change your understanding of how people think, how they perceive, how they decide, you change your understanding of people generally. And it's, it was, a, it was a, real, a real watershed in my life. So what is risk perception psychology? I'm really curious. Oh, well, basically, it's a field of psychology that goes back to the 1970s when, as you may know, there was large and growing controversy about the safety of nuclear power. The nuclear engineers would say, you know, look at our data. It's okay. It's safe. Don't worry about it. And the public was worried about it regardless. And it didn't matter how many numbers they were shown. They got more and more worried. And so that was the point at which psychologists got involved to say, well, how do people make these judgments about risk if they're not making it on the basis of available data? How are they making these judgments? Why are they so much more worried than the nuclear engineers say they should be? And the bottom line on that is that risk perception is in large part intuitive. It's felt. If you feel that something is a threat, you will take it seriously. If you don't feel that, you won't. And generally speaking, that applies to any risk. And sometimes that works. Sometimes our intuitive understanding of risk, our intuitive sense of risk is very accurate and will keep us out of danger. And sometimes it is horribly inaccurate and it will not help us whatsoever. A simple example is after 9-11, of course, we all saw, saw the jet fly into the tower. We saw what happened afterward and all sorts of folks became terrified of flying, thinking that they would be the next victims of deadly hijackings. And so, but they still had to get around. So what did they do? Well, they started driving instead because that didn't feel like a threat. Well, guess what? Driving is, in fact, considerably riskier than flying. And as a result of this mass shift from flying to driving, by some estimates, as many as 1,500 people died who would not otherwise have died. So that's a great example of how our intuitive 
perception of risk can steer us, in fact, into greater danger. That's something that I find really fascinating. And especially I feel like people who constantly watch the news or get caught up in stories about terrorism or mass shootings or whatever it might be, kind of miss the point that I think, as you've said in the past, today, we're actually some of the, the healthiest and safest people to ever live on planet Earth. Yeah, I mean, that's just an indisputable fact. We are some of the healthiest and safest people to, uh, and wealthiest too, if you want to throw that one in, to ever live. And yet we sure don't talk or act like it. That's really pretty unfortunate. Number one, we're not, you know, sort of appreciating the bounty which has been bestowed upon us. But also it means that we're in large part, we're, we're missing the real risks very often when we think about what we should worry about and what we shouldn't worry about. So you're quite right. We worry about the big, dramatic, the vivid risks like terrorist attacks, even though any quick glance at the statistics will tell you that as an individual, are you likely to be killed in a terrorist attack? Almost certainly not. But simultaneously, we ignore the real risks. You know, sitting on the couch, watching television, eating junk food doesn't feel like a threat. But if you do it day after day, month after month, year after year, yeah, it is a real threat. And that's why you know, there's some pretty undramatic uh, advice that I always give people. I always say, basically, if you eat a reasonable diet, don't smoke, obey all traffic rules, get some exercise, you have basically dramatically reduced your risk to all the major killers in modern life. But that's not a terribly exciting message. <laughs> it's not exactly great for uh, grabbing headlines. You know, it's funny, oftentimes the the best advice is is the most simple and obvious. Yeah, I mean, this the, the, this is one of those areas where that is absolutely true. But the problem, of course, is again, it goes back to, you know, how do we judge risks? And as I say, you know, sitting on your couch watching television and eating junk food, it does not feel like a threat because, it, it, because of our risk perception psychology. And where does that come from? It comes from where the brain evolved, the environment in which it evolved. It, it evolved in a world completely unlike the world in which we live. And so there's this radical mismatch between our intuitive sense of risk and the world in which we live. And so the things that we should kind of be worried about, like not getting enough exercise, like eating too much salt, like smoking, those things don't feel like threats. Meantime, those things that do feel like major threats, the terrorist attack that you see on television or whatever, they aren't so much. That's why it's so absolutely critical that people think carefully about risk judgments to ask themselves hard questions. Does this really make sense? Is there really evidence to support this? Don't let your gut drive the decision. So when thinking about some of these major risks, for somebody who's listening now, instead of following kind of their gut instinct, what you're recommending is think a little bit more deeply about it. Oh, absolutely. Introspection is absolutely essential. And this is actually a, a point which I think comes out of psychology in general, comes out of decision making in general. When you ask who are the people who make good judgments and what do they have in common? I would suggest to you that there is at least uh, a couple of points that are universal. And one at the top of that list is introspection. People who have good judgment tend to think a lot about their thinking. Uh, psychologists call that metacognition. They think about their thinking. So they tend to be the sorts of people who say, okay, this is what I think. Here's my conclusion. But does it really make sense? 
Is it really supported by evidence? Am I looking at the evidence in an unbiased fashion? Have I overlooked other possible explanations? And as I say, when you look at people with good judgment, you find that they have that introspection in spades. My favorite illustration of that is George Soros. George Soros is, of course, today is controversial because of politics, but just forget that. Remember that George Soros from the 1950s to the 1980s was an incredibly successful investor. And particularly during the 1970s, that was impressive because, of course, that was a terrible time to be an investor. And yet he was very successful during that time. And the interesting thing is when George Soros was asked, you know, George, why are you so good? And when you've made billions and billions of dollars, you're perfectly entitled to say it's because I'm smarter than all you people. But he never said anything at all like that. His answer was always the same thing. He always said, I am absolutely aware that I am going to make mistakes. And so I'm constantly looking at my own thinking to try to find the mistakes that I know must be there. And as a result, I catch and correct more of my mistakes than does the other guy. And so it's that sort of very intellectually humble message, which he says is the source of his success. And frankly, I think you can, as I say, I think you can find that sort of deep introspection in every single person who has demonstrable good judgment. The So on the topic of good judgment, I think that's a good segue into kind of the, the whole discussion about forecasting. Let's start out. I'd love to hear the story or kind of the analogy of monkeys throwing darts. Tell me about that. <laughs> Yeah, we call that the unfortunate punchline. My co-author, Philip Tetlock, is a very eminent psychologist, originally at the University of California, Berkeley, now at the University of Pennsylvania, at the Wharton School of Business. And Phil, back in the 1980s, became interested in expert political judgments. You know, you have very smart people who are observing world affairs and they say, OK, I think I understand it and I think I know what's going to happen next. And they make a forecast. And Phil decided, well, are they any good? And when you look at the available evidence, what you quickly realize is that, well, lots of people have lots of opinions about expert forecasts. That's all they are. They hadn't been properly scientifically tested. And so Phil said to himself, well, how should they be tested? How can we do this? And he developed a methodology for testing the accuracy of expert forecasts. And then he launched what was at the time one of the biggest research programs on expert political forecasting ever undertaken. He had over 280 experts, you know, people like economists, political scientists, journalists, uh, intelligence analysts. He had those folks make a huge number of predictions about geopolitical events over many different time frames. And then he waited for time to pass so that the, he could judge the accuracy of the forecasts. And then he brought together all the data and crunched all the data and boiled it all down. And there are vast numbers of findings that came out of this enormous research, which was published in a book called Expert Political Judgment in 2005. And one conclusion that came out of this research was that the average expert was about as accurate as random guessing, or if you want to be pejorative, the average expert was about as accurate as a dart-throwing chimpanzee. And some people really latched on to that conclusion. They really enjoyed that. These are the sorts of people who like to sneer at so-called experts. And they, there are other people who like to say that, you know, it's impossible to predict the future. And they always cite this as being evidence of that demonstrably fallacious conclusion. But 
this is one of those instances where statisticians like to warn people that averages are often useful and insightful, but sometimes they obscure things. And this is one of those classic illustrations where the average actually obscured the reality. The really interesting finding from Phil's research was not that the, uh, the average expert was about as accurate as the Darth chimpanzee. It was that there were two statistically distinguishable groups of experts. One group did much worse than the dart-throwing chimpanzee, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. The other group had real predictive insight. They did better than random guessing. It was still modest predictive insight. They made lots of errors, but they clearly had real foresight. And so the really interesting question from Phil's original research was, what distinguishes the two types of experts? You know, What makes one type of expert a, a disaster and what makes the other type of expert somebody with real foresight? And he looked at all sorts of the factors that you think might be relevant. You know, did they have PhDs? Did they have access to classified information, whether they were left wing or right wing, optimistic or pessimistic? And he showed that none of these factors made a difference. Ultimately, what made the difference was the style of thinking. The two types of experts had two very, very different styles of thinking. And to sum this up, Phil used a metaphor which has been used in many different contexts, the foxes and hedgehogs. It's because there's a scrap of ancient Greek poetry in which the ancient Greek poet says, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. So the one type of expert style of thinking is to have one big idea. That's the hedgehog. The hedgehog has one big idea, and here that means they have one analytical tool. They have one lens, one way of looking at reality, and they think that that is sort of like the secret decoder ring of the universe. And so they use it over and over and over again to tell them what is going on, right, to make forecasts. And that sort of expert, they like to keep their analysis simple. They don't like to clutter it up with a whole bunch of different perspectives and information. And they like to push the analysis until it becomes, it delivers a nice, clear answer. And of course, if you deliver, if you push the analysis until it delivers a clear answer, you're more often than not, you're going to be very confident in your, in your conclusion. You're going to be more likely to say that something is certain or that something is impossible. The other type of expert is the fox. And as the ancient Greek poet has it, the fox knows many things. What that means in this context is the fox doesn't have one big analytical idea the fox will use multiple analytical ideas. You know, in this case, the fox may use one idea. In another case, the fox may use a different idea. And foxes are also very comfortable with going and consulting other views. So here I have my analysis. I come to a conclusion. But you have an analysis. I want to hear your analysis. And if you've got a different way of thinking, a different analysis, a, a different method, then I definitely want to hear that. Uh, they want to hear from multiple information sources. They want to hear different perspectives. And they drag those perspectives together and try and make sense of all these disparate sources of information and different perspectives. Now, if you do that, you will necessarily end up with an analysis that is not so elegant as the hedgehog's analysis. It'll be complex and it will be uncertain, right? You'll probably end up with more situations where you have, you know, say you have seven factors that point in one direction and five factors that point in another direction. And then you'll say, well, you know, on balance, I think it's maybe 65%. It will happen. So they'll be more likely to say that sort of thing than they will be to say it's certain to happen or it's impossible right? So they end up being much less confident than the, the hedgehogs. 
Well, the conclusion of Phil's research was that the hedgehogs were disastrous when it came to making accurate forecasts. As I said, that they were less accurate than the, than the dart-throwing chimpanzee. The foxes had the style of thinking that was more likely to produce a, an accurate forecast. But, and here's the punchline, the real punchline from Phil's research, is that he also showed there was an inverse correlation between fame and accuracy, meaning the more famous the expert was, the less accurate his forecasting was, which sounds absolutely perverse when you think about it, because, of course, you would think that the media would flock to the accurate forecaster and ignore the inaccurate forecaster. But, in fact, it makes perfect sense. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Because remember that the hedgehog tells you a simple, clear story that comes to a definite conclusion. It will happen or it won't happen. A confident conclusion. Whereas the, the Fox expert says, well, there are some factors pointing in one direction. There are other factors pointing in another direction. There's a lot of uncertainty here, but I think it's more likely than not that it will happen. And if you know anything about the psychology of uncertainty, we, are, we really just don't like uncertainty. Right. So when you go to an expert and you, and you get that fox like answer that says, well, uh, balance of probabilities, that's psychologically unsatisfying. Whereas the, the hedgehog is giving you what you psychologically crave, which is a nice, simple, clear story with a strong, clear conclusion. And as a result, we find that the media goes to exactly the type of expert who is most likely to be wrong. That's a really important and really unfortunate finding, and I wish it were as 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 famous as Phil's finding about the average expert being as likely, to, you know, as accurate as a dart throwing chimpanzee, uh, because it is just so much more important. But unfortunately, there it is. So that was that was sort of the culmination of Phil's first enormous research program. I think it's such an important finding that the smartest people, or the most accurate forecasters, as you call them, the foxes are often kind of the most humble and the least very, you know, kind of confident and certain about what's actually going to happen. Yep. This is, this is, again, this is, if you were to ask me about sort of universals of good judgment, I think one of the universals is a quality that I call intellectual humility. And I emphasize intellectual humility because it's not just humility. You know, this isn't about somebody wringing his or her hands and saying, I'm not worthy, I'm no good. It, by intellectual humility, I mean, it's almost like a worldview in which you say, look, reality is immense, 
complex, fundamentally uncertain in many ways, for us to understand even a little bit of it, let alone to predict what's going to come next, is a constant struggle. And what's more, we're fallible people and people make mistakes. So I just know that I'm going to have to work really hard and I'm still going to make mistakes, but, I'm, but I can, in fact, slowly try to comprehend a little bit and try to do a little bit better. That attitude is absolutely fundamental for a couple of reasons. Number one, it says you're going to have to work really hard at this, right? Comprehending reality, let alone forecasting, is not easy. Expect to work hard if you want to do it well and accurately. Number two is it encourages introspection. You remember I mentioned earlier that introspection is universal among people with good judgment. Well, if you're intellectually humble and you know you're going to make mistakes, you're going to be constantly thinking about your thinking so that you can try and find those errors. Okay. So that is sort of that introspection flows naturally out of intellectual humility. And the third element that comes flows out of intellectual humility is this. If you have this idea that, you know, the universe is vast and complex and we can never be sure, then you know that certainty is an illusion. You should not be chasing certainty because human beings just can't manage that. So what does that mean? That means don't think of making a forecast in terms of it will happen or it won't happen. Don't think in terms of it's 100% or 0%. Think in terms of 1% to 99%. It's all a question of degrees of maybe right? And the finer grained you can distinguish between degrees of maybe the better. So what I've just described is something called probabilistic thinking. And it too is very, very fundamental to people with good judgment. And unfortunately, it's very unnatural. It's not how people normally think. In fact, how people normally think is we sometimes call it a three-setting mental dial. You know, you ask yourself, is this thing going to happen? And you say, it will happen or it won't happen. Or if you really force me to acknowledge uncertainty, because I really don't like uncertainty, I will say maybe. I'll, that's the third setting on my mental dial. So there's only those three crude settings. Whereas probabilistic thinking says, no, no, throw out those two settings. You know, it will happen or it won't happen. It's all degrees of maybe. So as I say, that this is not natural. This is not how people ordinarily think. But people can learn to do it and they can learn, make it a habit. Scientists think as probabilistic thinkers, good scientists do anyway. And the super forecasters that we discovered in Phil's second research program, people with demonstrably excellent forecasting skill, they are real probabilistic thinkers. And it is a habit with them. I mean, I spoke with one super forecaster and, you know, just in a casual conversation, I said, you know, so it's, do you read? Do you read much? And, and he said, oh, yeah, I read lots. I said, well, do you read fiction or nonfiction? He said, I read both. I said, well, what proportion of the two would you say that you read? And he said, oh, it's about 70, 30. And then he caught himself and, and thought carefully. And he said, no, it's closer to 65, 35. Right. And this is in a casual conversation. Normal people just don't think with that degree of fine grained maybeness. But people who learn to think in probabilistic terms, they can make it habitual and they can think that that carefully. And, and, and by the way, the, the data is very clear that that is, in fact, one of the reasons why these super forecasters are super. Before we dig into that, because I do want to talk about how we can kind of train ourselves and uh, to think more probabilistically and how we can learn from some of these super forecasters, 
touching back on the idea of why people dislike uncertainty so much, can you share kind of the anecdote about cancer diagnosis? Oh, sure. You know, look, it, when I say that people dislike uncertainty, you know, people get it. Okay, I dislike uncertainty. I would prefer to have hard facts. It is or it isn't. Okay. But I don't think they quite appreciate just how profoundly aversive uncertainty really is. Psychologically aversive, it really is. And let me illustrate, in fact, with, with two illustrations. One is a scientific study that was conducted in, in Holland, where they asked volunteers to experience electric shocks. And some of the uh, volunteers were told, you are about to receive 20 strong electric shocks in a sequence. And then they were wired up to be monitored for the physiological evidence of fear, which is elevated heart rate, elevated respiration rate, perspiration, of course. And then other volunteers were told, you will receive 17 mild electric shocks interspersed randomly with three strong electric shocks. And they too were monitored for the evidence of fear. Now, objectively, the first group obviously received much more pain, much more painful shocks. But guess who experienced more fear? It was the second group. And why? Because they never could know whether the next shock would be strong or mild. And that uncertainty caused much more fear than the pain itself. So that sort of aversion to uncertainty is very powerful stuff. And you will see it in doctor's offices. In fact, any doctor can will will tell you a, a version of the story I'm about to say. You know, the patient comes in, the doctor has reason to suspect that the patient has cancer, tells the patient this, says, but we can't be sure. We have to do more tests and then we'll see. So they do the tests and then the patient waits. And any person who's ever been through that will tell you that the waiting is hell. And then one day you go back to the doctor's office, you sit down, and sometimes, unfortunately, the doctor has to say, I'm afraid to tell you that the tests confirm that you have cancer. And almost universally, what patients report feeling at that moment is relief. They feel better. And they almost always say the same thing, at least I know, at least I know. So that's how powerful uncertainty is that the possibility of a bad thing happening can be a greater psychological burden on us than is the certainty that the bad thing is happening. And so if that's the case, if, if uncertainty is so horrible to us and we just want to get rid of it, it's really no surprise then that we will turn to sources that promise to get rid of uncertainty even when it's not rational to do so. So now let's dig into kind of the idea of super forecasting and, and let's start with what is a super forecaster? Yeah, it's a bit of a grandiose term, I have to admit, but it actually has humble origins. A number of years ago, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in the United States, that's the, the office that oversees all the 16 intelligence agencies, including the CIA in the United States. A number of officials in that office decided that they had to get more serious about analyzing the forecasting that the intelligence community does, because I don't know if you're aware, but the intelligence community actually spends a lot of its time not just spying, but also 
analyzing information to try and figure out what's going to happen next. So, you know, if, if, if Russia is saber rattling, they're going to make a forecast. Will Russia try to seize the Crimea? You know, they'll try to make forecasts about all sorts of geopolitical events, including economic events, like, you know, what's going to happen to the Chinese economy in the fourth quarter, that sort of thing. And so the officials within the ODNI decided they had, they had to get better at this. And one of the ways that they decided they would get better at this is to sponsor what became called a forecasting tournament. And what that meant was, it was was very simple. It sounds like a game, but it's not a game. It's an enormous research program. And what they did was they went to leading researchers in forecasting and they said, you set up a team to make forecasts and we'll ask questions and there'll be the real world questions that we have to answer all the time. And we'll ask them in real time. So as they arise, you know, if, if an insurrection breaks out in Syria, we'll ask something about how that will proceed. And so you have to forecast it and then we'll let time pass and then we will judge whether your forecasts are accurate or not. And we'll do this for lots and lots and lots of questions. And you guys, you researchers, you can use any methods you want. And then at the end of this process, we will be able to analyze the accuracy of all these forecasts. We will see which methods work, which methods don't, and then try to learn how we can improve what we're doing. Very sensible stuff, you would think. So they, as I say, they went out to leading researchers. Ultimately, they ended up with five university-based research teams in this forecasting tournament. One of the research teams was led by my co-author, Philip Tetlock, and that team was called the Good Judgment Project. To give you an idea of the scale of this undertaking, the Good Judgment Project, which, as I say, was only one of five teams, it involved volunteers. They went out and they recruited and, you know, through through blogs and whatnot and said, you know, basically, do you want to spend a little free time making geopolitical forecasts? Then sign up here. And so they got huge numbers of volunteers. At any one time, there were 2,800 to 3,000 people involved with the Good Judgment Project. Over the course of the four-year tournament, there were more than 20,000 people involved. So it gives you an idea of the scale of this. And the bottom line result, I mean, there were many, many results that came out of this because, as you can imagine, the data are voluminous. But the bottom line result was, one, the Good Judgment Project won, hands down. Number two, the Good Judgment Project discovered that there was a small percentage between one and two percent of the forecasters, the volunteer forecasters, were truly excellent forecasters. They were consistently good. And I say consistently good because that's very important to bear in mind. Anybody can get lucky once or twice or three times. But if you're consistently good, you can be pretty sure that you're looking at skill, not luck. And to give you an idea of how good they were, well, at the start of the tournament, the uh, ODNI set performance benchmarks, which all the researchers thought were way too ambitious. Nobody could beat these. Well, the super forecasters blew past the performance benchmarks. They beat prediction markets, which economists would say shouldn't be possible. They even beat intelligence analysts who had access to classified information, which is particularly amazing because, remember, these are ordinary folks. So these super forecasters, when they went to make their forecasts, basically they had to use just whatever information they could dig up with Google. And yet they were able to beat even people who had access to all that juicy classified information. So this is really impressive stuff. And then the question is, well, why are they so good? 
And so we can quickly dispatch a number of things that you might think would explain this. Number one, you might think that they're using some kind of arcane math, right? They're using big data, algorithms, some craziness that, you know, ordinary folks can't understand. No, they didn't. In fact, to the extent that they use math, they were very numerate people, by the way. They are very numerate people. I should emphasize that point. They are well above average in numeracy. But to the extent that they used math in making their judgments, it was like high school math. It was nothing particularly dramatic. Another thing that you might say would make the difference, well, maybe they're just geniuses, right? They're just so off the charts intelligent that, you know, they're just super. And no, that's not the case either. They were tested for on IQ. They were given IQ tests. And again, they scored well above average. These are not just, you know, randomly selected folks off the street. But they're not sort of, you know, mental level geniuses. They're not so incredibly intelligent that, you know, ordinary folks can't relate to them. And so it's very clear the conclusion that you can draw from this is basically it's, it's less what they have than how they use it. And the third element that you might think is specialist knowledge, right? You might think, well, okay, they're used. These are experts in some fields, in the fields that they're trying to forecast. And and no, I can tell you categorically, they were not experts in the field. They're very informed people, right? These are people who agreed to make geopolitical forecasts in their spare time. It's no surprise that they're, you know, they're smart. They follow, they follow the news. They follow international news. They're interested in this stuff. They're very informed, but they're not specialists, and we know this for the very simple reason that they were asked about all sorts of different questions in all sorts of different fields, and nobody is an expert in every field. So they're not any of those things. So then the question is, well, what elevates them? What makes them different? And uh, I, I wish there were like one or two simple answers, you know, a couple of clear, crisp bullet points that answers everything. But that's not the case. As is so often the case, rea the reality is complex. There's, a, there's, a, there's quite a list of things that make them, make them different. Number one, they're intellectually curious. I think that's very, very important. It's no surprise. These are people who like to learn. They're constantly bit, picking up bits and pieces of information. And no surprise, when you spend a lot of time picking up bits and pieces of information, eventually you will have quite a number of dots in your intellectual arsenal for you to connect. Two, these are people who score very high in what psychologists call need for cognition, which is simply means that they like to think. They really enjoy thinking. They're the kinds of people who do puzzles for fun. And the harder the puzzle is, the more fun it is, uh, which is very important because when you look at how they actually make their forecasts, it's a lot of hard mental effort. And, and so enjoying that hard mental effort sure helps. Three, they're actively open-minded. This is another term from psychology. Open-minded is pretty obvious. That means, you know, okay, I've got my perspective, but I want to hear your perspective. I want to hear somebody else's perspective. I want to hear different ways of thinking about this problem. And then they're going to gather all these different perspectives together and try to synthesize them into their own view. Now, that's the open-minded part. But of course, there's an old saying about open-mindedness. Don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. Well, these folks, that's where that's the, the active part and active open mindedness. And, and these folks were very active in their open mindedness, meaning that as they're listening to all these other perspectives and gathering these other perspectives, they're thinking critically about them. They're saying, does that really make sense? Is that actually supported by evidence? Is that logical? So they're doing that constantly when they draw these perspectives together and synthesize them into their own view, which, again, I would emphasize that that sounds like a heck of a lot of work. It is. It is. And unfortunately, as I said, they like they like hard thinking. And fundamentally, also, 
they're intellectually humble. I mentioned intellectual humility earlier. That is absolutely true here. And all the things that flow from that are true. You know, they're hard, they're hard mental workers. They are deeply introspective people. They're constantly looking at their thinking, trying to find the mistakes, trying to correct it and improve it. And they're probabilistic thinkers. That also flows from intellectual humility. And so and another, oh, and another element I would also add is, is simply this. If you ask, you know, well, how do they actually approach a problem? How do they actually make a, a judgment? One of the critical differences between a super forecaster and most ordinary folks is rather than simply vaguely mulling over information, you know, and stroking your chin until somehow uh, an answer emerges somehow and you don't know how, that's a terrible way to make a forecast, by the way. What they do is that they methodically unpack the question. So they take a big question and they unpack it and make a whole series of smaller questions. And then they unpack those and they make a series of smaller questions and they methodically examine them each one step by step by step by step. Uh, again, this is a very laborious method. A lot of hard mental work goes into it, but it's demonstrably effective. Uh, there's a, a famous physicist named Enrico Fermi, one of the fathers of the atomic bomb who became famous for his ability to estimate things accurately. And he actually taught this method. Fermi estimates basically involve unpacking questions so that you methodically tackle them one after the other after another. People who work in physics or engineering will be familiar with this. Fermi estimates are, are actually taught in those departments. In fact, engineers, to engineers, this is almost second nature, this idea of unpacking the problem and methodically tackling it that way. It's probably not, this is a bit speculative, but it's probably not a coincidence that a disproportionate number of the super forecasters have engineering backgrounds. So software engineers, computer programmers, whatever, people with engineering backgrounds sort of get this. That was fascinating. And I think one of the most important things you said is that it's not easy and it takes a lot of hard work to make effective decisions or in this particular context, effective forecasts. One of the things that, that I always say is that there's no kind of get-rich-quick strategy to becoming a better thinker. <laughs> it takes a lot of time, energy, reading, and introspection to really build kind of a robust thought process to improve your own ability to think and make better decisions. That, that's absolutely correct. And it also touches on a, a further factor, which I, I didn't mention, which is certainly one of the most important which is that these are people who have what psychologists call the growth mindset, which is that they believe that if they think hard and they work hard and they practice their forecasting skill and they look at the results of their forecasts and they think about how they got them right or how they got them wrong and then they try again, that they will improve their forecasting skill, just as you would improve any skill that you practice carefully with good feedback over time. You might say, but isn't that perfectly obvious? Doesn't everybody understand that in order for you to improve a skill, you have to practice it? And, and the more you practice, the better it will get. And unfortunately, that's just not true. There's a psychologist named Carol Dweck who has done an enormous amount of research in this field, and she talks about two mindsets. One is the growth mindset that I just described, but the other mindset is the fixed mindset, which is basically the idea that we're all born with abilities and talents and skills, and that's all we've got. 
So if I try something and I fail, I'm not going to try it again because I have demonstrated the limits of my abilities and it would be foolish of me to waste time trying to improve those abilities. And so that's why it's very, very critical. And, and we see this clearly in the super forecasters. They have very strong growth mindset. And more importantly, they put it into action. So they were making their forecasts. They were doing postmortems, trying to figure out what went right, what went wrong and why. They were trying to improve on the next round, trying to improve on the next round. And they did. There was demonstrable improvement. And so it's very clear that underlying all of this is you have to have some belief in the ability to grow or you won't engage in the hard work that's necessary to grow. And longtime listeners to the show will know that, uh, that on here, we're huge fans of Carol Dweck and, and the book mindset. And, uh, we actually have a whole episode on kind of the difference between the growth mindset and the fixed mindset and oh, great. breaking out all those things. So I'll include uh, links to both of those things in the show notes for people to kind of be able to dig down and really understand those concepts who, who have may not have heard the the previous episodes we have about that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm a huge fan of, of the growth mindset and I think it's critically important. Yeah. And there's no question that in Phil Tetlock's research, super forecasting research, the data very clearly demonstrate that. So for somebody who's listening, what are some sort of small concrete steps they could take right now to kind of implement some of the best practices of super forecasters to improve their own thinking? Well, the first thing I would say is adopt as an axiom, because of course, as humans, we all have to have axioms in our thinking. Adopt as an axiom that nothing is certain, right? And it's easy to say that in the abstract, but it's a lot harder to apply it in our lives. Because if you stop and you think about your own thinking, you'll begin to realize that you use the language of certainty constantly which is normally fine. You know, I'm sure in this conversation, I've, I've used certainly and, and that sort of thing. But remember, at a minimum, that any time that you say certain or refer to certainty, there's an asterisk, almost, right? The asterisk means almost, because in fact, in reality, literally nothing is certain, not even death and taxes. And once you start to think in those terms and you make that an axiom, you can start to make it a habit to say, okay, it's not certain. How likely is it? Think in terms of probability. And, you know, it's often said that the ability to distinguish between, you know, a, a 48% probability and a 52% probability or even a 45 and a 55% probability, it sounds like a modest thing. But if you can do that consistently, that's the difference between going bankrupt and making a fortune in certain environments, such as Las Vegas or Wall Street. And so thinking, learning to think, to make it habitual to think in terms of probability is, I think, step number one. And for listeners who want to find you or the book, what's the best place for people to find you online? Oh, uh, probably dangardner.ca. That's Dan Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R dot C-A for Canada. And for, for listeners who uh, might have missed it earlier, the book that we've primarily been talking about is Super Forecasting. Highly recommend it. As you can tell from this interview, Dan is incredibly sharp about all of these different topics. Dan, for somebody who's listening, obviously, they should check out Super Forecasting. What are some other resources you'd recommend if they want to learn more about kind of how to make better decisions and how to make better forecasts? 
Oh, that's an easy question. The very first book, in fact, I would recommend it before my own books, which uh, <laughs> is something authors aren't supposed to do, but here goes. Uh, the very first book folks should read is uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Kahneman is, of course, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist who is one of the seminal figures of our time. And fortunately, he finally got around to, long after I read all of his papers and <laughs> learned the hard way, he finally got around to reading a, uh, writing a popular book. And Thinking Fast and Slow is absolutely, a, you know, essential reading. Anybody who makes decisions in, whether it's in business or in government or in the military or anywhere else, anybody who makes decisions that matter should read Thinking Fast and Slow. I totally agree. It's one of my favorite books. And I think one of the, the deepest, most information rich books about psychology that's on the market today. Absolutely. Well, Dan, this has been a great conversation and, and filled with a lot of fascinating insights. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, -E to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we talked about, and much more, make sure to check out our show notes, which are also on the website at scienceofsuccess.co. Hit the show notes button at the top. You can get the show notes from this interview and every single interview we've done. We've got transcripts. We've got everything you need in there. Be sure to check that out for all the resources that we discussed in this episode. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.